Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Today, we will be discussing the 2020 book by historian Thomas Frank, The People Know. The author provides us an introduction to his book as follows. For my final political book, I decided to come to a reckoning with populism, the idea that has defined my career. Also with anti-populism, by which I mean the people who hate that idea. I start by showing why everything we think we know about populism is wrong. It is not, as certain pundits and political scientists claim, a tradition of ignorance and intolerance. The true story of populism, which I trace through the titanic social struggle of the last century, is a history of enlightenment and liberation. Indeed, it is the story of American democracy itself, of its former promise of a decent life for us all. And now on to the podcast. Hi, Greg. We're back again. Great, great, good. And we've got a we've got a good book. That's a, a book within a book within a book. It's a Thomas Frank's uh, "The People Know," and I think most people know Thomas Frank's from his book "What's the Matter with Kansas." But he's done a lot of a uh, lot of good books. Uh, "Listen, Liberal," which took apart the Democratic Party. Uh, "Pity the Billionaire." So this one is a book, I guess, in response a little bit to uh, the uh, distortion of populism that we're find finding right now, but also the history of populism. So why don't I put up a, let's put up an outline and just talk through this outline and then get into the discussion of the book. What do you think about that? Let's try that. Let's give that a go. Okay. Populism comes from the term people, was coined in 1891. It's made up of a very left-wing progressive farmers group that came together to go after the monopoly capitalists and robber barons of the time. As a third party, they were able to defeat the establishment party in Kansas in 1890. It's quite upsetting at the time. And they grew in leaps and bounds after that. They were popular in many rural farming communities and part of the country. The party merged with the Democrats and William J. Bryant campaign in 1896 and died soon thereafter after his defeat to McKinley. The movement include, included black farmers in the South and this horrified the white supremacists resulting in voter suppression, lynching, paramilitary gang. It also included women in leadership positions. They were all farmers, of course, and helped secure voting rights in many regions of the country 30 years before the passage of the 19th Amendment. Frank also traces the history of working people coming together out of various class interests to reform the economic system, including 1930, a New Deal, the labor movement, 1960s uh, civil rights movement and even contemporary with Bernie Sanders campaign. The book is also a story of the people that hate and despise populism, uh, which often takes uh, a very hysterical form. And finally, Frank also discusses how populism got flipped beginning in the 1950s and how the term is often misused and co-opted and 
almost uh, not not recognizable. So the book, Greg. Well, I like the book, uh, Pat. I I, uh, I liked it a lot. I think everybody should read it. I have, of course, uh, some criticisms of it, but uh, it's a part of uh, U.S. history that that is not terribly well known, and I think most uh, most people in this country would benefit from studying it. Uh, and he does a really good job of explaining it to, to people. And he does it historically. He doesn't try to define it as something fixed in time, but he talks about the history, how it evolved. And to grasp that, you've kind of got to go back to uh, the Homestead Acts, which were an opportunity for people to take land to the west of the Mississippi for free. And there were several Homestead Acts, but the most noted one was Lincoln's 1863 and encouraged people and including slaves, you know, slaves were allowed to go and, and get up, to, I think, 160 acres of land. And there was an enormous increase in the U.S. population, much of which went to the West between 1860 and 1900. The country grew by from 31 million to 75 million. Two million farms grew into six million farms. But as that happened, as these farms, they were small scale farms, they went into debt. And the debt really became an enormous problem. Rapacious mm -hmm. bankers loan them the money, but the product that they were producing, the corn, the wheat, and so on, was diminishing in dollar value. So they were able to pay, repay less and less and less of their initial debt. So the late 1800s, 1880, 1890, was a time of severity in this country, particularly in the Midwest. And that's essentially when populism. Farmers being yeah. squeezed. And... Yes, squeezed enormously in the South and the Midwest. Different reasons, perhaps, different political economies, but similar, both agriculture, agricultural, and both leading to the same problem with debt. And so there was a reaction. There was a, a, uh, a bubbling up of, of a fierce fight back uh, by the people. And it took shape in terms of this People's Party or this Populist Party that grew up and that really started in 1892. It, it, its enemy, it located the enemy as monopoly. And in our terms, monopoly capitalism. And essentially because they were agrarian, it was the railroads and the land the railroads snatched and the, uh, the ability of the railroads as a monopoly to control the shipping costs. Extract, extract rents and remarkably yes. so with no repercussion for that. Right, right. And they could do it as a monopoly so that there was no competition. So one railroad would not give you a, a better deal, another a lesser deal. They agreed, they monopolized that. So they were squeezed by the, the, uh, the drop in the price of their product. They were squeezed, squeezed by the transportation cost and they rebelled. And that's really the the political economy of the populist movement. That's what it that sprung from that. Started in Kansas and they won one big, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it took off. I mean, they were, pro, they were precursors. They were the Grange uh, movement. They were the, the, uh, the uh, Farmers Alliance, but they kind of merged into one movement. And there were two aspects to it. One was this kind of mythical view. It really wasn't based really in uh, deep understanding of political economy that um, if there were more currency, if there were more fiat currency or silver in this case, and a lot of this was fueled by the, the silver monopolies, but uh, that, that they would get, that there'd be more money in circulation 
and uh, everything would get better. Well, that was kind of a, a false uh, hope. But behind that were a number of great reforms, enormous reforms, uh, uh, single things we would have embraced today, like a single term, direct election, direct elections of all, all um, uh, uh, politicians, direct democracy, uh, government ownership, uh, on and on and on. I mean, just a host of really great reforms, shorter work week. Women's of course, they, they, were for, they were for abolishing unrestricted immigration, which a lot of people recoil and say, well, whoa, whoa. but in fact, there's, a, there's an element of, uh, of seriousness about that because the immigrants were a source of, of low cost right. labor. Labor was a commodity, is a commodity. And the, the less people are willing to work and the more people there are that are willing to work for less money, the more pressure it puts on everybody's income and they recognize that. But, but for the most part, this was a real progressive agenda that, and, and of course, Frank outlines it very, very well. Yeah. So this bubbles up and this coalesces as a political party, number one, a party that ran in 1892 and gathered 8.5% of the uh, vote. And with the Prohibition Party that had a similar um, agenda, it's 11% of the vote in 1892. And I think in 1894, a non-presidential year, they garnered even more votes. They garnered right. 1.5 million votes. So the party was growing. And then what happened, Pat? What happened? Well, more money. Spot. What happened? More, more money spent in any presidential campaign ever in today's dollars and based on the population. What happened to the People's Party? It got crushed. No, what happened to the People's the Fusion Movement? They fused with the Democratic Party. Well, they, well, and well, then got crushed. That's, that's <laughs> They hung out with the fire. They, 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 they hung out with a bad. They hung out with a bad crowd, and that's what you expect. Yeah, and they were Democrats. Yeah, and they were. Democrats put William Jennings Bryan forward, not the traditional populist leaders. They ran on the silver thing, which no one really understood. They just had this faith that somehow silver was going to solve all the problems. They ignored most of the rest of the uh, political program. And they got smashed. And yeah. you're correct. I mean, they, they spend more money. It's it's the merging of modern politics, really. They spent millions of dollars in 20, today's dollars. 20 to 1. 20 to 1. Can you imagine that? 20 to 1. And all the newspapers supported the Republicans. Right. All the newspapers demonized, as you've pointed out, as you point out. Yeah, and the, the interesting part about that time is the the way in which they were beat with their political campaigns is the exact same script that we're using today to beat Bernie Sanders. You know, they, they, you're, you're un American, you're destroying our values, you're uh, giving money to people uh, that are doing nothing, that are just taking, you know, this, this is the exact same propaganda with, the, with, with the, how, they, how they defeated them. Yeah, and that was the end, really, of the Populist Party as a national political party, and just receded and dropped off. And really, uh, I got to say it, I think it was uh, a mistake on their part to, to do that. Uh, in the South, they lost the South because the Southerners, the, the more progressive party in the South would have been the Republicans. And so the Southern populists had to side with Republicans. So they really split the South and the Midwest around this election. 
and this fusion notion, this concept of fusion was a, was a disaster for them. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, Frank could have spent more time talking about that. And if he had, he probably would not have concluded as he does in this book, that we should invest in the Democratic Party for our next populist movement. I think that's probably not going to happen. I, yeah. I, I, I can't believe that will happen. I was interested in, in the book of par partially where all of the, was, was the, the politics of trying to defeat the populist movement and how much money McKinley spent to defeat uh, William Bryant. And um, they said it was more money than was ever spent in any campaign ever when you take into account the population of the country, the, mm -hmm. um, uh, the um, inflation and so forth, 20 to one. And the political, cart political propaganda or advertisement, I guess there's no difference between the two, the themes that are apparent in defeating populism are the exact same themes that are apparent in defeating Bernie and defeating some of the new populist mm -hmm. movements. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a keen observation. And, and uh, it really is the beginning. Mark Hanna's campaign is the beginning of modern politics in a real sense. And it's, it's uh, I think it, it's worth noting the fact that this emerging monopoly capitalism carried a political dimension with it as well. So in the new era in the 20th century, a century dominated by monopoly capitalism in America, the political system was changing as well. And it was do being dominated more and more by money, which you pointed out. Uh, uh, the demagogues were out. The stealing of progressive issues. Uh, this was really the first time that a political party, the Democratic Party said, well, we can come up with some weak tea reformism and we'll appease that sector of the population, which will then become our constituency, which of course, as you just pointed out, is essentially what's going on today. Yeah, yeah. Let's take, let's just, let's take a look at a few of those cartoons. Uh, the first is a, a fellow that looks like he's dressed like a French anarchist. His red stocking cap says anarchy, his flame says ruin, and he is trained to drive out the very respectable bankers and capitalist and honorable, respectable citizens of the time. And, and behind him are the tattered uh, populace that are supporting him. Here is one called Well Protected, and it's William McKinley, the Republican candidate for president at the time, as a very uh, prosperous gentleman who's escorting Miss Gold Standard through the slums of popocracy. <laughs> and the policemen behind her, very respectable also, are on hand to protect the orthodoxy from the lower class uh, political crooks, which are, of course, the, the populist in the background. I love this cartoon. It's called The Assassin. And we have a populist who is... Uh, dressed like a um, kind of a, a bum, if you will. I think this is supposed to be a derogatory, xenophobic representation of an Italian of the time, holding a sign that says, down with the courts. He has a dagger. He just killed uh, Lady Liberty. <laughs> 
and uh, in, and she is uh, sprawled uh, uh, dead on the sidewalk. On her belt, it says U.S. credit. So this is an example of them, of the McKinley campaign trying to paint the populist as uh, ruining our U.S. treasury and everything that we hold dear. And here is one called The Temptation. And we are depicting Bryant here as Satan, horns and all red, as you would think, trying to tempt the Christ-like farmer with a world made of silver. Uh, the point here isn't so much that free silver is a fraud, but that it's evil and a departure from the ways of God and all human civilization. So there, a few cartoons of the day. Political propaganda, not much different than we see uh, in our present uh, campaigns. So anyway, that's an example of some of these. You know, they 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 deemed them socialist. Uh, they uh, suggested that somehow they were, um, you know, illiterate. Uh, that they weren't. They didn't have the intelligence to to govern, which is part of part of that. And that was part of the campaign used to destroy populism. I guess that we still do that now, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about other things that they were for besides silver, uh, because it's quite an oppressive progressive agenda that could stand up today. They were for government ownership of the railroad system. And that's a response to the monopolization of the railroads right? and the state subsidization of the railroads. I mean, you really are seeing the beginnings of state monopoly capitalism where the state is actually working on behalf of monopoly capitalism. They were for government ownership of telegraph and telephone systems. They, they carried over from, they were a mix of looking forward and looking back. They carried over from Jeffersonian uh, ideology, uh, small private ownership. They thought the ideal was to have small, small uh, plots, uh, small ownership, and that would keep inequality down. They believed in a free secret ballot. Uh, uh, woman suffrage, uh, also uh, um, single term, which was a progressive is a progressive uh, um, position. They believed in direct election of senators back when they weren't elected directly, direct election of the president, which would have gotten rid of back then the electoral college, which liberals today hate so much, and so on. They believe in direct democracy, and you'll find this interestingly enough in uh, the Paris Commune of 1871. This is one of the demands of the, of the communards and one of the uh, demands that um, Karl Marx thought was critical for a real democracy and that is uh, popular initiatives so that you could introduce, uh, get petitions and introduce legislative questions, force them onto the issue and referendum, which of course we have some of today, but not much I think in California, that referendum is still a, a used, uh, used tool. Um, no subsidies for private corporations, a shorter work week, and homage to the uh, homage to the uh, um, to the workers that were connected with the popular power, the People's Party. Uh, no intervention in labor matters. Uh, the Pinkertons were, were not going to be allowed to do what the Pinkertons did. Uh, they were anti-corruption. They were for progressive income tax, and they were against land monopoly. A, if if uh, a corporation had land it had to put it to good use. If it had excessive land, it had to be nationalized. And that's the way. So it's, a, it's quite a progressive program. One well, that I you, think you, 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 
glossed over one thing, which is the women's right to vote. The populist party secured the right to vote for women in several states and areas, you know, 30 years before mm -hmm. it became an, an, you know, a, a national initiative. Well, there's a glaring, there's a glaring omission here, and that is they didn't take a strong position nationally on the question of race and the question of racism and segregation in the South as a kind of catering to their Southern populace. Well, they, um, they, they did support the, in, in the South, they did support the black farmers and that created the backlash, uh, didn't it? When, you know, when, when they went down to the South um, up until big Jim Fulton, the governor in the fifties, the populist movement was prominent during the early parts of reconstruction. And then after, after they, um, I guess cons they, they were able to bring together the black and the white farmers, both of them very, very poor. And that threatened the power structure, which then brought in the poll tax and KKK and lynching and, you know, slavery by another name, you know, Blackman's book. Um, but they did have, they did have some sensibilities, didn't they, to the relationship? Yeah, yeah, and, but it was uh, not so much a national program as it was in different states and in different counties and different locales right. and different cities, but they weren't, didn't take a strong universal position on it, which is a weakness. And uh, uh, we have to say that, even though, you know, we, 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 I think Frank's great contribution is to make this known to people. I mean, right. people know this history. They don't know that people rose up in the Midwest, that uh, people uh, were fighting back, that they were, they were oppressed, they were exploited, and they took action, unlike today, where people right. tend to uh, blame themselves. But here, uh, you had a very lively uh, reaction to it. I think one of the things that, uh, that Frank does do that perhaps is questionable, and that is he, he underplays other movements because populism was a great movement of its kind, but there was also a movement before the war, the Socialist Party developments with, uh, with Debs. And in fact, the progressive movement in 1924 around La Follette was even bigger. They garnered 16.6% .6 of the vote at that time nationally. And they had a program, a plank that was as good or even better than this one. So this country has always had these kind of risings, these kind of people's uh, movements that, that sometimes arise spontaneously and get shaped into something. But then you've got to ask the question, why didn't they win? Why didn't they go further? And the lessons are there. The lessons for today are there. One lesson being the Democratic Party is not going to be the carrier for these, this, these messages. You can see that clearly with the Populist Party. When, when these, this program was taken into the Democratic Party, all of this was weakened. All of this was turned back, essentially. Some straw positions were put up in, in their stead. But the silver issue and William Jennings Bryan was put in the forefront. So it's kind of a sham progressivism, a sham well, that's, populism. That's does that, book, does that sound familiar though, Pat? Does well, that sound familiar? That's the, the, the book is populism in a way, the history, but then it's the people's no, it's the movement against populism. All the times that the powerful 
yes. have come together to defeat, to demonize, to stop these movements. And then I guess the third, I guess if you're looking at three books, so you've got populism, the rise against populism. Then the third thing is how it is in today's term being distorted. The term populism now doesn't mean what it used to mean. Bannon calls himself a populist. You know, he, he he's, um, and Trump calls himself a populist. So there's sort of the distortion of what truly populism populism is. Well, well, it, it's up for grabs. I mean, that's 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 the point. And I think it's that's its great weakness, is that it is up for grabs because it's really easy for a, a demagogue to jump on it and run with it. And that's happened in the past. Uh, he mentions it. He's honest enough about it. He kind of gets the 20th century wrong. He gets the 19th century right, but the 20th century wrong. But he does bring up the Father Coughlin's, the 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 uh, the KKK, the uh, Liberty League, all of these forces that arose during the New Deal, for example, to 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 squash it, to to kill it, to kill progressivism uh, uh, going forward. Well, talk he about it he's very honest about it, but. Then you got to ask the question. I mean, it's to be honest, you have to say, why is it it happens over and over and over again? What are the lessons? What can, what can we learn? What can we translate into today? Right. So go to the 30s. Roosevelt did not call himself a populist, but he was in everything that he did in, in his policies and, and so forth. And the go going to the people know part of the book, I was surprised at the absolute opposition to Roosevelt. Everybody, the academians, the, all of the think tanks, the politicians, every single newspaper in the country were trying to stop his programs from coming to, you know, coming to pass. And yet he had the support of the people. He spoke to the people. He spoke to them with his fireside chats, um, was concerned well, about labor, I, I would, was concerned would, about the farmers. Add, sure, sure. But I would add that they were that the, the people pushed him in this direction. It was the existence of popular movements beyond the Democratic Party. Uh, for example, the CIO. I mean, you cannot underestimate the importance of the CIO coming into existence in the 30s. When John L. Lewis sat down, gathered up a bunch of organizers, mainly communists, most of them were communists, and said, look, I'm, I'm an anti-communist, but you guys are the best organizers. We're gonna go and we're gonna, we're gonna organize industrial workers, not craftsmen, not the plumbers, you know, the AFL's had forever. They, they, they can protect their small little gills and so on, but the industrial workers, the mass of workers in this country and do that. And it was that pressure that forced them to pass labor legislation. Right. It was the it was the left in this country, right. the organized left, that forced him to adopt a social security uh, uh, legislation. Without that, it wouldn't have happened. The picture of Roosevelt as inventing all this is 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 just false. It's just not the true picture. It's a nice study. It's a nice thing to tell Democrats, fellow Democrats, if you're a Democrat, but. It's not the truth. The truth was well, he was pressed on all these. He, he was pushed there by the various, yes. various, you know, my, my grandfather was a dirt farmer in Oklahoma and he loved Roosevelt, you know, because WPA, 
helping the farmers during the Dust Bowl. Um, you know, he was he felt that somebody in Washington cared about him. And um, so let's go let's go up to the 60s. This is something I didn't quite know, which is how much Martin Luther King um, was familiar with the history of the Populist Party back in 1890 and the people and uh, the people's movement and how much his civil rights movement drew on that and drew on that knowledge and that history uh, to gain strength with his with the civil rights movement. It wasn't just voting, it was organizing labor, it was being against uh, well, that, that, that's a very, it's a very, very, uh, let's say, uh, distorted picture of that. King's background really was not that at all. It was, and and the people that he cites as center to the civil rights movement, Bayard Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, uh, and of course Walter Ruther, are your classic social democrats. That, in hindsight, with McCarthyism and the Cold War behind us, they're cited. But they weren't the influences on King. King came up, uh, you know, he was red baited all his life. I mean, right, that, right. Know that. He came up under the influence of people far to the left of that. They were the people that were leading civil rights activities up to that time. Right. And he drew on them. And, and as, he, as he evolved, he actually drew closer to them, closer and closer to the socialist left, the anti war left in the beginning. Uh, that famous speech, uh, church speech, yeah, that everybody yeah. quotes. But then he did a Freedom Way speech months before he died, in which he talked about uh, he talked about uh, uh, W. E. Du Bois. He said he's a communist. We've got to get over our anti-communism. He talked about Pablo Neruda. He's a communist. We got to get over our anti-communism. And he went on in this way at that Freedom Way speech. Never quoted. You, you dig hard on the internet to find it, but it's a, it's a very, very moving speech. So he continued to move leftward all through his career. Populism didn't play that big of a role in his, uh, his story. Again, the 20th century and through the eyes of Thomas Frank is really kind of uh, through the lens of populism, but not really very accurate, not really a very accurate picture. You, you, you know, he had a progressive- he, he, ro he romanticizes it, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But, but nonetheless, I recommend this book and I think we do well to have a populist party. You know, there is a, uh, a formation. Um, it's called the, uh, wait a minute here. Oh boy. It's called the Movement for a People's Party. And uh, it's just, it, it comes out of a guy named Nick Brana, who was a top aide to Bernie Sanders. And it's drawn people like Cornell West and, uh, um, a uh, number of other left uh, uh, celebrity types to it. And they held a preliminary convention on the internet, a Zoom convention, if you will, that drew around 400,000 people. So I welcome this. I mean, we need a third party. We need a militant, tough third party. The, the, my greatest criticism of Thomas Frank is in the end, he reverts back to the Democratic Party. How could you study that history, know it so well and present it as well as he did? present that moment when the Democrats co-opted it, stole it and smashed it, and still say in 2020, 2021, well, we've got to convert the Democratic Party into a party. I, I don't know it if I agree with that. Happen. 
I think I disagree with that. His book, Listen Liberal, was basically an absolute condemnation of the Democratic Party. And and he's he is brutal with Bill Clinton, with yeah. the policies of, you know, the uh, FCC and the deregulation of the media, the uh, crime bill, uh, NAFTA selling out the selling out the in fact, he he if he believes that it was Clinton that essentially laid paved the road for Trump. And that brings us to our contemporary populace, maybe with Bernie Sanders. But before we get to Bernie Sanders, if you look at Trump and you look at his speeches and you hear Steve Bannon talk about Trump, they paint him as this populace. They yeah. say this all started with the banks and these these were the elites and the elites got away with this and they're going to rob you and then of course he has this nationalist xenophobia that kind of is the glue that pushes them together but he thinks that trump is this great populist well he he spoke populist on the campaign trail he's mm -hmm. he he, he talked about jobs leaving, he talked about manufacturing, he talked about, you know, protecting the working person. You know, he systematically didn't do anything about that. In fact, with the tax cut is probably the single biggest transfer of wealth and destroying the middle class that I think we've ever had in this country. But, but you have, what the, the, let's get back to populist and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders voters were also Trump voters. Yeah, you know they're, they're it's they're the they're the same disenfranchised. This is the the real challenge. I mean, if you know, a good reason to do a podcast is to try to drum into people this analysis of the Democratic Party. It's brilliant. It really is. I mean, he criticizes the DLC. He locates it in time. The turn of the Democratic Party away from New Dealism. Uh, he talks about the the arrogance of the uh, elites. The shift in the demographics of the Democratic Party, uh, uh, the uh, smugness of Cold War liberals. Uh, is one section there, he talks about the term authoritarianism, which liberals love to banty about. And he says, yeah, so they advocate giving the authority to the elites, but you don't want authoritarianism to win out. In other words, the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, antidote to authoritarianism is give the authority to the elites. Right. Well, that's authoritarianism. That's what you're doing, in effect. So, I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant section. But then it's still the Democratic Party. It's like, okay, all that said, where else can we do this but in the Democratic Party? And I think that's a mistake. I think that's just, uh, that can't happen. The Democratic Party, when it's ever had its moments that you could, you could, praise them, praise the party as such, Social Security, for example, or the uh, Johnson's uh, reforms, some of the anti-racist stuff. It's only when there's a powerful movement, a powerful political party, a, second, a third political party that's pushing them. And then they go back to sleep. And uh, so I, I, I think we need a third party. I mean, we need a, a third party that says to Democrats, we have a home over here should you stab us in the back as you always do? Should you tell us that, well, those demands are not realistic as Biden's already beginning to do with the $15 an hour and some of the other things, uh, the forgiveness of student loans. He's uh, just yesterday, he said, 
well, I'm not really ready to do this forgiveness of student loans, $50,000 uh, or more. Or well, I'm not really ready to do the minimum wage. We'll end up graduating it up in increments rather than just the $15 an hour. I'm not ready to do the $2,000 uh, stimulus plan for the COVID relief. And then it bring, goes down to 1400 Now it's, well, maybe we should means to, yeah, he, he's his own worst enemy with, with that. And, well, uh, is he his own worst enemy or is that the game plan? Is that the traditional historic Democratic Party game plan? Well, that's the contemporary Democratic Party game plan from Clinton on. Uh, you know, they have, they have uh, systematically walked away from labor and walked away from the, you know, many of the, you know, working class um, uh, platforms that are necessary for them to survive. They, they've, they've done a horrible job with that. Well, today uh, you can, the Democrats can essentially take labor and unfortunately uh, African-Americans for granted because African-American leadership for the most part is deeply embedded in the Democratic Party and African-American voters see nowhere else to go. And the same is true of trade unionists. But they found a place to go. They went to Trump, a lot of them, not all of right. them. It's a, it's a mistake to, to paint the whole labor movement, white working class as being Trumpites. They're not. But many of them voted for Obama for change, didn't get it, and turned around and voted for Trump for change and didn't get it. So where do they and, go now? And would have voted for Bernie. <laughs> yeah, and would have voted for Bernie. Exactly. Right. In the right. primaries, they voted for Bernie against Hillary and against, uh, uh, against uh, Joe. So in Kentucky, for example, it's one of those states they hold up as a flyover state. Well, you know, they're all bumpkins, Appalachia, yada, 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 like that book that uh, we, we've talked about before. And in, in reality, those many counties in Kentucky went for Bernie in the primary, went big for Bernie. Right. And uh, you know, so you, 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 you got to give people an option. If you give them Pepsi and Coke, they're going to have to drink Pepsi or Coke or go break the bottles. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I, uh, that you, you sent me an article that was talking about Reverend Will Campbell and how he was a Southern Baptist preacher who had this one part of the article said he, you know, was talking about the Ku Klux Klan. He says, I don't hate the Ku Klux Klan. I hate why they are there, but they're there for a reason. They're there because they were pushed there with poverty. They were pushed there with capitalism, uh, destroying their jobs, destroying their family. And so you that that's, I think, part of the problem with the Democratic Party. They say, you know, the, the, the deplorable quote from Hillary is, an, is a perfect example of blaming the victim. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it's the if you would just get rid of your guns and your your Bibles, uh, we would be we would all be fine. Well, why do they why do they find necessity for that? They do because the, the society around them has so problematically deteriorated, they're trying to hang on to something. Yeah. And, and I think it's, um, it, it's misplaced. It's, it's a, sociologists call it a fundamental attribution error <laughs> of blaming the, blaming the victim as opposed to blaming the circumstances that created the victim. And yeah, I think that's yeah, that, yeah. that's what's happening with the Democratic Party in, in a nutshell, you know. But do you let me ask you again? Do you think that uh, uh, an agenda, uh, populist agenda, if we would agree, I mean, uh, 
we agreed on an agenda, we kind of know what the shape of it would be, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage or more, uh, and so on and so on. It's out there. It's, uh, you can find these issues and these, these, uh, these programs, but do you think they can be pushed into the Democratic Party? Do you think that uh, we have 72% of the people in a Fox poll election exit uh, polls that Fox News did that say they're for single payer, they're for Medicare for all, and yet we can make no motion on it. And Biden says, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. You think that party can accept those reforms? Well, they, uh, they almost did. They almost elected Bernie. I mean, you know, they, they come to the, they come to the edge and then they, they get defeated by, and that that's again, part of the book, the people know, what is the no? That's part of where you define these populist movements as hysterical. You define them as socialist or communist. You define them as destroying the American way by um, supporting people sitting on the stoop, having their malt liquor and doing nothing and your tax dollars are supporting them. You know, those, old, those, those scripts, which are the exact same scripts that were used back in 1890, the exact same thing, destroying our way of life, cartoons of people stepping on the Bible, you're destroying our, you know, uh, the foundation of our country, God given rights and so forth. So, so uh, the people are supporting these issues as they did in the past. Uh, we know the enemies of the people, the, the media, which is a monopoly capitalist media for the most part, except for us, of course, and the, uh, uh, the wealthy in the country are the enemy of the people. We expect them to be, to say no, to the people, but do you expect the Democratic Party to say no? Well, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the Democratic Party, but what is stopping those agendas from happening? Is it the Democratic Party or is it the, the powerful group of people who are controlling our democracy, whether they be Democrats, Republicans, or, or, or whatever? Um, you know, and then you take into account the other issue, which is you don't really get good information through the media. So you, you don't get, you know, you, your um, democracy has to run on some sense of, of truth, and it, that's lost. Yeah. When three quarters of the people in this country are for Medicare for all, are for a system, especially during a time of a pandemic like this, where our healthcare system is completely failed us, shouldn't people in politics hear that and do something? Well, that's a, not, perfect, that's, a perfect, that's a perfect example. The populist movement actually continued in parts of, parts of the world and it continued in, in the 1930s and 40s. It was really big in Canada, in the provinces in Canada, the farming communities, Saskatchewan, so forth. And that political movement gained power and were responsible for the Canadian healthcare system eventually becoming a national Medicare for all. And who opposed them? The doctors, the, you know, all the powerful moneyed interests opposed them, but they were able to break through there. I mean, so 
But that I, wasn't the populist movement, Pat. That was the Social Democratic. That was the New Democratic Party, and that was a third party in Canada. Well, that was it. It was a popular. It came. It sprung from the populist. Well, there were always the populist sentiment. Yeah, as a right. sentiment. But but it was organized around a political party, and it was a third political party. It was outside of the two principal uh, right. conservative and the uh, and the liberal party. Right. So uh, that would suggest that we need a third party. Would it not? I mean, that's they got something a long time ago that we still can't get. I don't know. I, I you know, well, I guess I can I can hold my breath and get pretty blue waiting for the Democrats to, you know, uh, effectively uh, take these these principles and integrate them into their uh, into their party as long as money is is so strongly influence our democratic process. I, I don't know. Well, what's frightening is that uh, you know, Trumpism will return around the corner. I mean, it's just lurking around the corner if the Democrats do not take on something that will satisfy people. Right. People aren't going to stick with the Democrats um, if there's nothing to make them stick. I mean, nothing new, nothing to get around the enormous problems we're facing right now. And I think the, the, the fixation with Trump for the last four years has created a kind of smokescreen that hides the problems. Everybody can rally, all the liberals can rally around, get rid of Trump, get rid of Trump, get rid of Trump. But then once that smoke is gone, this country's in deep, deep doo-doo. And I don't know how the Democrats are gonna manage that. And if they don't manage it, what do you think voters are gonna do? They're gonna turn right. to, the only option they see, which is the Republican Party. Legitimate and, 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 and McConnell's already trying to reshape it and refashion it. He wants it to be uh, a more uh, proper car, uh, party without the vulgarity of a Trump, without the uh, history of, of using women and all the ugliness that Trump brought, the racism that Trump brought. But they want the same agenda. Right. They just want it. They want a populist agenda that they shape right. without Trump. And it's there. And the Democrats want, as, and this is what Thomas Frank is saying. He says the Democrats rejected populism. The Republicans, as, as you pointed out, they have taken it on right, well before right. Bannon, well before Bannon. You can view Nixon as a populist. Uh, you, you can view uh, uh, Reaganism. Reagan always talked about the elites in Washington, and, and they are elites, and they Pat, don't care. Pat Buchanan, you know, Pat Buchanan. considered himself a populist, right? I mean, how would you argue with someone who voted for Trump that said, those aren't my people in DC? They're not my people. They don't look like my friends or me. They don't act like my friends or me. Their concerns are different than mine. They have nothing in common with me. What, what do you say to that? I mean, they're looking for someone different and they found him in Trump, but he's, you know, obviously he's a wacko and he's not, a, not gonna right. answer any questions, but. Uh, we've got well, to break it out of this. I mean, there's too much at stake. Uh, children's lives, uh, wars, uh, just just way too much at stake to, to let this uh, persist. Well, working people came together and pressured Roosevelt in the 30s. They were organized, Pat. They were organized. Working people came together in the civil rights movement. And and they were organized. Right. It but they, that wasn't a third party that that came through Democrats, didn't it? What's what came through Democrats? Well, I mean, you're saying you have to have a third party. Those 
those uh, good parts of American history where you know the power of the working people's demands were actually legislated properly didn't have a third party, did they? Oh, they, they, were, they I mean, there was uh, Wallace was a third party. Wallace was a third party uh, uh, in that same period. I mean, it, there, there was a realignment in U.S. politics in that period. Right. When, right. when Johnson decided to, to uh, change civil rights legislation and change and end segregation, essentially, and all the credit to him for doing that, I mean, being a force, the forces did it, but his accepting that in the Democratic Party is very important. Give him credit for that. He also, he also talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Medicare, Medicaid. We have that because of him. So yeah, they were, this was something he decided to, 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 to allow to happen because of the pressures, but, but he had to have it. I mean, the Democratic Party was losing and the cost was a realignment in the South. So he lost the South because of that and had to make a, a different kind of realignment. Right. But no, I mean, uh, uh, there, have been, there have been third party movements all along, the Progressive Party in 48. And there was also the Arch Segregationist Party in 48. Um, Strom Thurmond's party and so on and so forth. But and, I mean, what's, what's been accomplished, the Civil War was a great accomplishment. That was a revolution. The, the Civil Rights Movement was a revolution. Uh, how much time passed between one and to the other? And who, who was administering this country in that period? Two parties, right. Democrats right. and Republicans. So Good. Yeah, well, listen, I, I think we... Got we I, I got a lot out of this book. It just I really I it I sparked too. my interest in a lot of other areas. I, I, I read a lot about the populist movement. I read a lot about um, you know Alabama and the farmers and the populist movements that sprung out of that or Mississippi. Ben, ben Tillman, Watson, all the all those uh, fascinating. Southern. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing of this prior to the book. So it was it was time well spent. I highly recommend it and. Um, I, 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 I agree. I concur. I, I, I tend to be the naysayer, but I, I got to say, I think everybody should read this book and it's an important part of our history and it has many, many lessons. And Good. He gets a lot of it right. Good. Good. All right. Well, Greg, we'll chat with you again soon, hopefully. Good. Let's do it again. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye.